Welcome to our grandparents' teachings, a storytelling program hosted by Chuck Miller in collaboration with the Sitka Tribe of Alaska, Art Change, and KCAW. This storytelling program will help keep Clinkett stories alive through community education. Join us the first Tuesday of every month from 7 to 8 p.m. as we celebrate the rich cultural heritage of this land. Welcome to Hashishkohas Ha'itaoshi Tu'at, our grandparents' teachings. This episode that we'll be doing here is going to be focused on our yao, or the herring. The herring come every spring and they bring life to Shitka, and a lot of people come here to harvest not only the herring itself, but the roe, which was very important. According to one of my friends, Louise Brady, she said in ancient days prior to contact, thousands of our Tlingit people would come just to sheet cud, just to harvest the herring and the herring roe. I've been harvesting the yao and the dakauk, which is the herring roe, every spring since I was a teenager, about 16 years old. I remember harvesting with my great-uncle Herman Davis Sr. and my cousin. He took me out on his boat for the very first time out in front of Seamart on the island of Cassiana Island. And I remember uh, learning from my uncle the things that he was trying to teach me that he learned from his uncle and their uncle before them, the importance of the yao, the herring, the importance of the kauk, the herring eggs, and how we harvest them. I have fond memories of that trip, and I've remembered the things that he showed me, and I teach it to my nephews and my children today and those young people that would like to learn from those ancient teachings on the specifics of, you know, you have to watch the tides and you have to be aware of what the tides are doing and where the herring are spawning and what to look for, you know, look for the seagulls because that's where the herring are spawning and the green of the water. The harvesting of the hemlock branches is very important, too. You just don't grab just any old hemlock branch. A lot of people will do that, which is fine. But my uncle was very specific in teaching me which ones to get, 
where the branches come off on one side of the tree and they fan out. That's the kind he told me to look for. And nothing too big because, you know, if I don't have a big boat, you don't want to get a big tree to put in the water. It's very hard to pull. So something that's manageable. And so he told me those things. And obviously you don't want a lot of the the old man's beard or the witch's hair on it because they have to you have to take that off. And then you have to get the right size rock to weigh it down, to get it down to the bottom. And you don't want to put it... That's why it's important to always... Uh, watch the tides because if the tide is still going out and you put your tree in the water where the herring are spawning and you don't take account of uh, the tide is still going out and you put it in a closer to the beach area your branches will be out of the water when the tide goes completely out so the herring can't do what they're supposed to do and spawn on the branches so you have to be aware of all of those things and obviously you have to have a buoy line too uh, so those things are pretty important to me and I think that the harvesting of the herring and the herring row is uh, something our ancestors have done for you know thousands of years, and it's been done very similar in fashion. Yeah, I suppose you know a long time ago we used canoes, obviously, and we had different materials, but the same concept is being done today. And I'm very appreciative of the yao that comes in and try not to over harvest. And those you know people get herring row, I share it with everyone. That's a part of the our culture. You just say, hey, would you like some herring roe? And you give it away and until people are happy and satisfied. And then with whatever's left out on the grounds, you be responsible and take your lines off of those sets and take the rocks off and let the tree do what it needs to do and let the eggs hatch. Uh, a lot of people don't do that for some reason. They don't like to take their, uh, their lines off of the trees when the herring have done their job. So... These are very important things to know. And then that sharing of the herring. There's many different words we use for the, the different types of uh, ways we harvest the herring row. The first one I would like to share with you is called haoda'a. That's the one on the branches, the hemlock branches. The other one that we harvest is called ne, which is on the, the, what they call hair kelp. And we have to use a grappling hook to grab those after they've spawned. And then the last one that we harvest is on the macrocystis kelp, the broad kelp. Uh, those are the three, which is called dao. They all have names. And then the herring row itself inside the animal, when, you, when it comes out, it's referred to as qaq. So those are some of the things I'd like to share with you and the importance of it. And uh, we have special guests in our studios today. I'd like to welcome them and thank them for their time. Gunachish to Mr. Charlie Skulka Jr., Kit Kuhn. And then also we have Ichtik Ish, Mr. Steve Johnson. And then we also have a special poem that uh, Pauline Duncan is going to share with us today. So thank you all for coming in and sharing uh, what you have with our listeners today. Gunachish. Welcome again to Hashlish Kohasa Itaushli Tuat. This uh, episode, we'll be focusing on the yao, the herring that comes into our shores every year, and we are grateful for that. And in our studios today, we have again Mr. Ichtik Ish, Mr. Steve Johnson, and uh, I'd like to welcome him here and uh, see what his thoughts are on yao and maybe share some stories of him growing up around this community and participating and not only harvesting. But maybe he might be willing to share a story with us. Welcome to our studios again, Ichtik Ish. Ah, 
So offset, we were talking about dad jokes. So here we go. <laughs> what does one herring say to another in Tlingit? Wasa. Hey, yow. Hey, yow. <laughs> <laughs> so yow is the Tlingit word for herring, so I have to explain it, but hey yow. I like it. Which is also kind of a common line in some of our songs, as they call the yada tune. Yow, hey yow. So, you know, it's funny on a lot of different levels in Tlingit. May not translate as well, but you're, you're free to borrow that one. I like that one. <laughs> I might use it. <laughs> You know, we can't talk about herring without talking about the waves and the sea and the ocean and the places where they come from. Right. And in the very beginning of time, there wasn't any of that. There was just water. And there was just one creature. They called him Nashigiyech, the creator raven. And we usually start these stories off with One day the raven was walking along the beach, but not this time, because there was none. The entire world was covered in water, and the raven was flying around. He flew for days and days and days and days. And one day he decided to see if there was more out there than just water. So he pointed his beak west, and he kept on going. He reached a place at the edge of the world where the sky and the water met. And the water was like a large blanket. They're moving against the sky. And he reached down with his wing and he lifted the corner of the blanket and swam underneath. As he swam towards the bottom, he could see light in the distance. He could see flashes of light all the way around him. He swam deeper and deeper and deeper into the darkness towards the light. And as he got closer, he could see that it wasn't light, but that it was little fish, and they were swimming around in circles. And the light that he could see was a reflection from the sun, from the moon, and as he got closer, he could hear something in the distance. Boom. He swam closer and closer. The closer he got, the louder it got. Boom. Boom. And the faster it got. Boom. 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 As the sound got louder and faster, he could see the fish swimming together closer and closer and closer, touching each other, weaving against each other. He could see the house that they were swimming in and out of, the herring house. He went up to it, and there were sea lions swimming around the outside, and whales, creatures on the seafloor dancing, 
together to the beat of the drum. Boom, boom, boom. He went to the corner of the house and he stuck his eye in a crack between the two boards and he looked around and he could see all of these things floating around the fish, dancing. Boom, boom, boom. One of the things floated towards him and it got stuck to his eye. He pulled back for a minute, blinked, but it was stuck and it could not move. As he danced around, more of the things drifted out of the house and got stuck to him, to his wings, to his feathers, to his feet. He didn't know what to do. So he leaned over with his beak and he ate one and it was crunchy and it was salty and it tasted so good he ate another and more and more and more until he could not quit eating. He lay on the sea floor. He could hear the drum fading in the distance. And he looked up. He had eaten too much. He was too full and could not swim away. So he lay on the bottom of the ocean thinking, I have literally eaten myself to death. I will die here. I'll die happy. So he lay down on the bottom of the ocean he spread his wings out on the seafloor. He tilted his head back. And he lifted his tail up. And he closed his eyes. And he waited. And he waited. And he waited. After some time, he could feel the water start to disappear. It rolled off his belly, off his wings off of his feet until finally he could feel the waves lapping against his body. And he looked up and he could see the sun, the moon, and the stars. They were right where he left them. The ocean had parted away and the land had risen from the bottom. And the sound that he once heard was still booming way off in the distance. But he could no longer hear it the same, but he could feel it in the rocks and in his soul. And the water had turned a milky color. And he could see all of his friends who were dancing so hard the night before, laying on the beach, swimming in the waves, enjoying their time together. When I was a young man, I went herring fishing. I went herring seining. And I made a chunk of change doing it. I remember thinking about all the things that I would be able to buy. Bigger tires for the truck. Sound system. At that time, CD players that didn't skip... Yeah. For three seconds. <laughs> that was the ticket. Mm-hmm. And there was one time we had a particularly good set. 
and the whole boat was plugged, and even the net was full of herring. We had side-hauled it aboard and piled it up, and I was laying on top of it as we were going back to town. And I was looking up, and I saw the seagulls, eagles, and the raven flying overhead. And I began to think about that raven, that raven who thought he ate himself to death, how he had taken so much that he could not swim to the surface. And I got to think about that in the context of, of my life and how, how much we were taking. And there were so many herring everywhere. I mean, Seymour Canal, Port Hooton, they were just full of them, jumping everywhere, all over the place. And I never thought that what we were doing was doing harm to them. But that was the last year I fished for them. Because the year after that, they didn't come back. And the year after that, they didn't come back. And after a couple of years, we just put our gear away because it wasn't going to happen again. And it still hasn't happened. These are places that we fished, but they're not anymore. And that area has grown. You know, it's grown from Seymour Canal, Fort Hooton, Hobart Bay, all those places that used to have great fisheries 20 years ago, 25 years ago. They're dead now. And now even Huna Sound, right in our backyard, dead. You know, there used to be a huge spawning run there. And there was a fishery there that didn't kill the fish. They just netted them up and put them in pens, let them spawn, and then they let them go. But for whatever reason, those fish aren't coming back either. And in theory, that's a better way to do it because you don't kill them. Mm-hmm. But the one thing I've seen in my lifetime is there used to be a lot more bigger herring, you know, yeah. seven, mm-hmm. eight-year-olds, and now we're down to five. A five-year-old is considered a big herring. Mm-hmm. And even those are getting fewer. And so you look at the numbers by fish and game and things, and they tell you that the population is increasing and the population is rising. But the casual observer saw fish in one area and not now. And that would strongly suggest that there's something more going on here. And, you know, just the other day they released the quota for this year. And it's a pretty big chunk. It's the biggest that's ever been Mm -hmm. forecasted and the biggest that they could in theory take. They don't actually have the processing capacity to do it. As there used to be a lot of buyers of herring, and now there's just two, you know. Right. A lot of the big major companies have bailed. It's not really profitable anymore. Which kind of brings me to another point. So, I mean, if, you know, we're killing these things for six or seven cents a pound. In the old days, we could say that, yeah, we're making a lot of jobs and we're making a lot of money for our towns, but... It's not that way anymore. Yeah. So I, I really have have looked at these things and I'm I kill fish for money. I mean I'm a fisherman. You know, that's what I do. But I don't want to kill the last one. And I definitely want to be able to pass these things on to future generations. I know how to kill lots of herring and salmon and cod and, you know, all these other fish that swim around, but 
Herring is really the, the backbone of our ocean. And it's very much a part of how, how other creatures survive. Not just us, but seals, sea lions, halibut, everything eats herring. King salmon, you know, king salmon eat a lot of herring. And whales. And so I feel like the, the models and the science that they use is outdated and needs to be revamped and needs to be relooked at. Because you look at other places, San Francisco, Puget Sound, British Columbia, all of them had a model similar to what we're using now. And their fisheries are done. Mm-hmm. You know? San Francisco was one of the biggest herring fisheries in the whole West Coast. Big, big herring, and lots of them. And... 2015 was their last hurrah. I mean, these are things in my lifetime. And I'm not, you know, really old here. But these are things that I have seen firsthand and witnessed. And myself and a lot of people in this town are are really concerned about it. And we've been hearing about these things. And at least I have since I was a little kid. You know, older people have said, yeah, there used to be a lot of herring here. There used to be a lot of herring here. And now there's not. Mm Mm-hmm. And so this torch has passed, you know, from my grandfather's generation to my father's and mm-hmm. now to ours. And mm-hmm. here we are. Mm-hmm. And I feel like herring is so important to us in so many different ways. I mean, not just as a food source, but as a religion and as our way of life. I mean, when I tell people who have no concept of herring what it's like, it's like our Christmas Everybody drops what they're doing, they go out, they throw some branches in, they get what they get, they give it away. They don't expect to be paid. Yep. You know, it's not about making money, it's not about these types of things, it's about, it's about a tradition and about carrying on something that's very important to us. And we're constantly having to defend our way of life and the last little shreds that we have of culture and practice. And this is one of the things that we have that's still living, that's still ongoing continuously from the time of our ancestors. Before people spoke English on this land, people were tossing branches in. Mm-hmm. And we're still doing it today. Yep. But I feel like it's in danger. And there's a very real possibility that there's decisions being made that are going to disrupt this way of life. Mm-hmm. And I've studied a lot about herring. In Norway, Norwegian people love herring. They eat them all day, every day for breakfast, even. Mm. You can have a herring mop for breakfast on toast. Mm. <laughs> Good stuff. You have fermented herring for lunch. It's, it's, it's acquired. <laughs> Open the can outside. Yeah. They say when the can gets puffy, it's ready. Oh, gee. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) But they overzealously wiped out their herring, and it took 60 years to come back. Wow. And so I feel like we really need to step back and look at these things and really have the research and the hard data and facts to support whether to fish or not to fish. Mm -hmm. And right now it's just darts at a board. 
It's just a formula, I guess. They guess how many fish are in the sea. They guess how many other fish are eating the little fish. They guess all these things. Scientifically, of course. But there's really not a lot of hard research on it, and there needs to be. And I feel like until there is, we got to leave them be. We got to, you know, ease up on them. Right. Until we actually know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I feel like, you know, a lot of my friends in the industry, they, they think we're against the fishing, but really we're not. We're against wiping them out. Yeah. I think some, somewhere there's a middle ground and somewhere there's a place that we all can agree. Really appreciate your thoughts and especially the story that you shared with us. It was very, very powerful. I've not heard that story before. I really appreciate you sharing that with all of us. And uh, thank you so much for coming in there, Ichtik Ish. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with our listeners before we end? You know, there's a few other things that I've noticed about herring too. And one is that the timing of the spawn has changed. You know, you used to be able to pick up a tide book and you could almost pinpoint mm-hmm. within two or three days of when it was going to happen. And now it, it gets later. And a big part of that is the older fish come in first and they show the younger fish how to do it. And once you start wiping out the older ones, that's it. Right. You know, the younger ones aren't very good at spawning. I mean, if that happens, it's going to be like four generations until they come back. And by that time, a lot of the knowledge of how to even set branches mm-hmm. will be lost to time. I mean, there's already fewer and fewer of us every year, you know? Right. For those of you that just joined us, we're listening to Mr. Ichtik Ish. Mr. Steve Johnson is our guest speaker in our studios today. We'd like to thank him for his words. Thank you again. This next song that we'll be sharing with you is a song that was composed by my friend Harold Jacobs, Goose Shu. He's originally from Sitka, but currently lives in Juneau. He composed this song with the words of an elder, the late George Davis of Angoon. Mr. Davis at one time was here in Sitka watching the young Bajahin dancers here at the Westmark Hotel back in the early 1980s when our culture was just starting to come back into, into light. And he saw the young people with Charlie Joseph Sr. performing and not knowing that the young people at the time could not speak the fluent language, uh, but the way that they sang the songs and the way Charlie, Grandpa Charlie, had taught them, he was so impressed. He made a speech to everyone. And this was dubbed, Because We Cherish You, that Sea Alaska has now. And the words that he used to describe what he had seen with the young people were, in our language, Tsuhede shugach tutan. And rough translation is, we will open again this container of wisdom left in our care. And so Mr. Harold Jacobs composed this song for the use at celebration in Juneau every two years on the even years. And so a lot of our young people in our community know this song and recognize it, and along with many different communities in Southeast Alaska. So we want to thank Mr. Harold Jacobs for this song and gifting it to everyone. Grilchish. Enjoy. Tuhe de shukok tutan, no. Tuhe de shukok tutan, ya ya ku 
Thank you, everyone, for listening to our grandparents' teachings. Today, in our studio, we have a very special guest, my friend, Mr. Kit Kuhn, Mr. Charlie Skulka, Jr., and he is going to be talking to us a little bit about herring and what that means to him, and uh, we'd love to hear his thoughts on that. But first, I'd like to welcome him here to the studios. Welcome, Mr. Charlie. Goodness, Mr. Chuck. Goodness, Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Yes, we're honored to have you here. And uh, we were just talking to our uh, Mr. Charlie about, like I said, herring, yao, which is a way we say it in our Tlingit language. And Mr. Charlie has a lot of knowledge when it comes to harvesting subsistence foods, and he's been a part of herring probably for a very, very long time, and no longer than me. But I'd like to hear some of your experiences with herring. Why is it important to you? How does your family utilize it? And what role did it play in your life? Oh, man, I, I spent so much time chasing herring over the decades and using them and being on one side of the fence or the other. At one time, I was a commercial fisherman. I've always been a subsistence user, and my family has been involved in herring, just like your family, Mr. Chuck, since time immemorial. For us, New Year's never started on New Year's. It was always everything started anew when the herring came. Right. Yeah, it was the beginning of the new year as far as getting food supplies and creating commerce. And that didn't happen just here in Sitka. The entire West Coast used to have massive herring runs. Mm-hmm. But due to overuse and poor choices we've seen those herring runs get depleted more and more every year as a subsistence user herring was very important to me and as a commercial fisherman at that time in my life it was important to me too because it was a way that i provided food on my table and and made obscene amounts of money in a short amount of time Mm -hmm. (laughs) <laughs> i don't know how else to put it and there were years that we didn't make money too you know everybody likes to to remember the glory days the days when we thought that it was an inexhaustible resource and and everything was fair game but sadly those days are gone yeah and seeing it not just on the subsistence side, we're also seeing it on the commercial side. The, the people that grew up eating herring eggs in Japan, it, it was kind of a, a religious thing with them, but I guess that generation of people are gone. They, they've moved on, and the new generation doesn't really follow those same traditions. Right. Um, and it's really expensive, mm-hmm. um, which was why it was so important for us native folks in, in the beginning of each year, because I, like I said, it's, it was the beginning of our commerce for the entire year. Uh, that's where we got our food stocks and our trading supplies. And, and we did it in such a way that it was sustainable. Instead of killing the fish to get the row, we collected the eggs. Mm-hmm. But sadly, that is one thing that um, is kind of frowned upon by Western culture is having free food sources that they can't control or capitalize on right right 
So, Mr. Charlie, I, I know that there's a word here that I'm not very too fond of either, but uh, uh, the word subsistence, that's a federally used, utilized word amongst all of us. We recognize it, but, you know, for all of our Native people, we tend to, we like to use the word harvest. What does harvesting mean to you? Harvesting of the roe, harvesting of the fish itself. What does that mean to you? And how do you uh, utilize that in your family system, I guess? Well, for me, if I were to replace subsistence or harvesting, I, I guess I would use the term survival. Mm -hmm. It means survival to me. Um, one, I, I get to harvest what, what I need is usually what I take. And, and generally, I'll take a little bit more than I need because I like to share with people that can't harvest themselves or unable to get out and get the resources. Yeah, absolutely. On the karma side and the commerce side, that helps get me a foothold on the incoming year. And, and hopefully those people will have bounty and some other thing that I can't get a hold of. And it, it always comes back. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the way our culture works. Mm -hmm. We hold each other up and, and that's what we do. <laughs> right. Yeah, absolutely. What goes around comes around. Absolutely. And if you get, if I get more than I need, the first thing I do is I share. And the first people I try to share with is elders. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And then there's always somebody that needs a little extra help or, or wants to eat some herring eggs. Right. I mean, there's a supply of people that want to eat herring eggs. Mm -hmm. Now, knowing that uh, Sitka right now is probably the capital of herring and harvesting of roe and the sacro fishery in Southeast. Uh, and growing up in Southeast, and I know that you've grown up in a few different places and subsisted off the land in a few different places, where did you learn and where did you start learning how to harvesting the herring and the herring row? And where did that begin and up until today? Oh, man. Well, traditionally, it all starts south of us, down around Kashakes, and it would work its way up the beach. But as a commercial fisherman... We would always watch in January, we would watch um, San Francisco, mm. where the commercial fishery used to start. San Francisco set the price for the entire fishery. Mm. A lot of times we'd go fishing and not know what the price was. We wouldn't get paid for almost a year out. Oh, my gosh. But, but in the beginning, it was a cash market, and there you literally got paid in cash after you were done fishing. So if you got a two or 300-ton set, and herring was going for $2,000 a ton, you could do the math. And at the end of the day, after you signed the paperwork, you would have five, $600,000 in the cash. Wow. But gathering, I can't remember not gathering. Mm -hmm. Whether it was down around Heidelberg, Fish Egg Island Craig, or up here around Sitka, even even the area we used to gather in Sitka has, has shrunken. The spawn doesn't last as long as it used to. Mm -hmm. And we'd always finish up in Juneau. Um, mm -hmm. And there were other places that I didn't fish in, but the Seine fleet used to fish too, like Kashakes and um, Beam Canal, Juneau, and here in Sitka. Was, the, the original fishery, wasn't a Sitka Sound sacro fishery. It was a Southeast Alaska fishery. Mm -hmm. But due to, um, I say due to overfishing and just poor choices and poor management, 
we watch those fisheries just slowly disappear. Hmm. But gathering for food, I can't remember not doing that, Chuck, mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. And we would always go out of our way to um, make sure that we were in Sitka for, for its spawn. And the Sitka spawn used to seem to last for at least a month, and it seems a lot shorter and spottier now. Yeah, I would agree with that. And there seems to be a real big divide between the initial spawn and then like a second wave now where it used to just seem to be like the spawn would start. And when that second wave hit, the first wave was still going on. Mm -hmm. I remember that. So it sounds like there has been a lot of change since the first time you've done commercial or traditional harvesting from the time you were young. And some of the places in Southeast have depleted the herring roast so much that there's not really too much activity in terms of commercial fishing and or uh, subsistence harvesting. So what are some of those key areas that you can remember that have that used to be very plentiful and now they're not so plentiful and there's no more commercial fishing in those areas? And uh, What are your experiences there that you'd like our listeners to know about? Oh, man. Well, one of my experiences that really sticks in my mind, it kind of has bothered me over the years. Not in the beginning. It didn't bother me at all in the beginning. But as I got older and started doing my best to be a more responsible user of our resources, I, I look back and, and I think about the last year we fished herring in Juneau. Juneau was on the decline. It always happened a couple of weeks after Sitka finished up and we, the, the fleet would leave Sitka and we'd move to Juneau and wait for the, the fish to show up. Mm -hmm. The last year we fished there, we were waiting quite a while. I would say close to four weeks. Wow. Throughout my years as a commercial fisherman, we've always had a distinct advantage against non-residents or people not from our area because we had generations of local knowledge mm -hmm. of where fish show up and not just where but when to be in that area so using that knowledge we uh we hung out in an area around douglas island where everything would usually start happening and one day we noticed a group of sea lions were congregated and from the foam in the water, we, we could tell that they were working on a school of herring. Mm -hmm. We notified the fish and game. They said, great, we'll announce an opening. They announced an opening. A few other boats came out. Those boats had sonars, all kinds of fancy equipment. I'd like to say we were the same, but I hope nobody takes any offense to this, but we were an Indian boat. We had a fathom meter and a compass. Mm -hmm. We were pretty fancy because we had a radio too. Yeah. And one in the skiff. Mm -hmm. but, um, anyway, we knew where the fish were without all that fancy equipment. When the opening happened, we went out of our way to go out and around and make sure that we caught that entire, all of them, caught them all. And we did. Hmm. We caught them all. Mm -hmm. there, there's never been a commercial opening in, in Juneau again. You know, and uh, and we made money. Oh, gosh, we made good money that day. Mm -hmm. But um, looking back, would, would I give that money back? You bet. Right. 
what was it culturally responsible? Oh, hell no. Mm -hmm. It was one of the most irresponsible things I've ever done in my life. Mm -hmm. and, and I can just imagine my friends that I used to fish with, the older guys, just rolling over in their graves hearing that. Because we were brought up to catch fish. We, we were convinced by an outside party that these were unexhaustible resources. We could never catch them all. And to ensure that, the state and the federal departments had, had taken over the control of the resources to make sure that it was going to be done responsibly and sustainably. Right. And so looking back, I just think, oh, my gosh, how could you be so naive mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so culturally irresponsible? Mm -hmm. And I, I hate saying that, too, because at the same time, I've got a lot of friends and family that still rely on commercial fishing for a living. Of course. Mm -hmm. When it interferes with not just mine, but the community's survival as a whole, somebody has to draw the line and say something. Yeah. It's even more irresponsible to let it continue. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, and I don't know why, but the universe has this strange way of putting people in the, I don't know if it's the right place or the wrong place at the right time or wrong time mm -hmm. to say those things. And, and crazy as it seems, I always find myself being put in that place. Well, let me ask you this. What year was that, that last fishery took place? You know, I can't recall the exact year but i was a very young man and, and i had a mullet and a mustache <laughs> so i'm guessing it was in the mid 80s okay <laughs> <laughs> and you know sadly i didn't know any better because i was brought up to do that right of course and as a native fisherman we weren't just good we were some of the best mm -hmm. and we still are I mean, the only thing that we don't see anymore in our communities is is the native fishing fleets that we used to have. Right. Angoon, Cake, Huna, even Juno. There, there used to be a strong base of native-owned fishing boats and native-owned permits. Mm -hmm. But through the course of time, those permits have been bought out and moved south. Most of the people making money off of our local resources don't even live here. Well, I shouldn't say most of them, a lot of them don't. And there's a lot of local people too trying to make a buck. Yeah, it's just kind of a bleak situation right now. Right, right. And then, you know, you and myself, and you've kind of talked about a little bit that uh, we're beneficiaries and of... of the product of commercial fisheries. I mean, my father was a commercial drift gill netter up in Lynn Canal in Haines for years and years and years. And there is a fine balance of, you know, we need to make sure that we, there's enough resources for the next year, et cetera, et cetera. And he kept talking to his buddies about, you know, fishing games not managing this correctly. We're going to be wiped out of sockeye before we know it. And sure enough, he got out of the business before it really went collapsed. And it did decline and to the point where they couldn't fish for sockeyes in Lynn Canal. And they went to chum fishery when they, they would just extract the chum eggs out of the, the dog salmon. And that was what they were targeting. So, And then here in Sitka, this is probably the last uh, commercial fishery for herring in southeast and nowhere else. And you know, Pretty sure it is. I don't know. If, well, there, there is a pound fishery. 
in Craig. I haven't heard how they've been doing in the last decade or so, but I know that they do sell herring eggs on kelp out of Craig. Right. But with so much change in southeast Alaska where fisheries are completely shut down because the resource isn't there anymore, you think people, in, in, you know, just in general, would be like, whoa, there's something wrong here. This is not good, you know. Why is Sitka the last place to harvest herring roe? So, but, you know, like I said, there's a balance between, you know, the commercial fisheries, which, we're, you know, a lot of us benefit from, which is we have to live, we have to be able to pay bills, et cetera, et cetera. But then there's yeah. that fine balance of, where do we draw the line? Like, we're going to take too much and then we're all going to be hosed. It's not going to be good for anybody. We need this resource. So if you were to tell our listeners something that, you, like you said, you've learned from the past and you, you've learned from the mistakes that you've made and now you're, 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 trying, you're trying to be more ethical about the way you live and balanced, what would you tell our listeners? What would you want them to know about why is herring so important to you now? Well, other than it being one of the main building blocks for our, our food system, our food chain. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Make sure and use it responsibly and, and remember that in every area in Southeast where, where people have come together and made towns, cities, villages, there's enough resources in those areas for us all to survive mm-hmm. and prosper. But as soon as one person or one user group gets greedy, then we all suffer. I don't think of what happened up in Juneau as much as being greedy, as much as just it was more in my mind, just being a little naive of what was going on in the big picture. Mm -hmm. And having that capitalistic attitude that there's an opportunity to make money. And we should seize the moment and take as much as we can, even if it meant taking it all. But we grow as we as we age, and hindsight is always twenty twenty. Um, well, for the most part, some of us, like myself, I, I still make the same mistakes over and over. I don't look back, but I try not to. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna leave that at that. But but yeah, just using things responsibly. And another thing, which is even more important, is and I know a lot of people don't even like to bring this up. They're always a big split between the you got to get over it someday crowd and the the people that say no, we're not done yet. But mm-hmm. be respectful of the people whose land you're on. Personally, I've been fortunate to live enough to live up here in Shitkakwan mm-hmm. among all the people. And um, and I do my best to respect that I'm on somebody else's land using their resources. Mm-hmm. And when I harvest anything, I do my best to only take what I need. And if, if I do end up with extra, I do my best to share. And... I also do my best to, to share knowledge on how to responsibly and respectfully harvest stuff. That's mm-hmm. that's kind of how I got sucked into the education system. Yeah. Is sharing that knowledge. Mm-hmm. And, um, and a lot of times we take for granted that a lot of these people should should know those unwritten rules and and have that common sense to not take it all. <laughs> right. Right. 
but that's not true. A lot of people think that there are certain diseases that came to our shores from the Western world that, that were the worst thing, but I truly think the worst thing that came from the Western world is capitalism, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. followed by money. Right. And sadly, you know, there, there's so many people that would like to come back with that and say, well, if you're such a, a native, why, why don't you just go back to being a native and move out of town and blah, 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 and live off the land? I'd really like to do that, you know, mm -hmm. but unfortunately, the way that everything's set up in Alaska, our native lands were turned over to a corporation, and I'll never have the the privilege to occupy my homelands because instead of it being our homelands, it's a corporate asset. Right. And occupying it would devalue it. Mm. So yeah, things have changed. Right. And they're changing. But like we've always done as a native people, we're going to adapt. Mm -hmm. We are still here. Yep. To quote Miss Jamie through all of this, we're still here. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's our responsibility to help educate future generations like you and I have done in the past where we've worked with Sikki Native Education Program, with the National Park Service, uh, with the organization, I think it was from Juno, and we had that herring camp where we educated the young people and we showed them how to how we collect the herring row on the, the, the hemlock boughs. And then we went out on the, the Alamarine cruise and we showed them how to put it in the water and this is how we do it. So those types of things, those things are really, really meaningful. And I think we actually had that where we had Ranger Ryan and you and myself. We did the herring egg cooking in the Bentwood boxes, which was really fascinating. I love that. Absolutely. That was one of my favorite times of year every year. And what sticks in my mind was the, the scope and sequence of things that we taught those kids at different age levels, starting with fire, how to make fire manually make fire remember those kids right. oh yeah and teamwork cheating working together to make fire right how to um store heat or energy in rocks and use that energy to to cook in a bent wood box mm -hmm. and how to set and collect herring eggs we, we did some underwater roving yeah we we had a great program mm -hmm. a while back it, it would be fun to get back into that but Due to COVID and other issues, it's been hard to get together with everybody and make those things happen. Right, right. And even doing the math with a little bit older kids, doing spawn deposition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and learning how to work the numbers and then comparing those numbers to what the commercial folks were saying the numbers were and looking at the difference. Right. Yes, there was mm -hmm. a lot of investigation going on and and a right. lot of good questions from our younger, younger students and participants. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed those those educational series we were doing with the park. I'd like to do that again someday. Yeah, me as well. Uh, I'd I'd like to wrap it up now, Mr. Charlie. But I want to end with a really cool question, a nice lighthearted question. I do appreciate your time and what you're having to share with our listeners, but. What is your favorite way of eating herring roe? What's your favorite way of eating it? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Can you narrow it down? <laughs> I would say neh. Neh. On the hair kelp. 
for our friends that don't know what ne is, and that that is herring eggs on hair kelp. Mm. It is a delicacy, and my favorite way to eat herring eggs on hair kelp, and me and Miss Nancy found this out, was dehydrated. Mm. It turns into popcorn is about all the best word that I could describe it as. My second favorite is herring eggs on macrocystis kelp cut into little tiny pizza shapes mm. and hydrated. And those turn into like a Dorito chip. Mm. <laughs> that sounds good. Yeah. And then, and then of course I, I do like roe. Right. Growing up on a herring boat, one of my favorite meals every year at the beginning of every year was sauteed herring roe in butter. Oh, yeah. Just a little bit of garlic and some soy sauce. Mm. Yeah. But there's so many different ways. I also like herring eggs on kelp in the form of a buttered and soy sauce burrito. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, of course, when we're picking, I, I, I like to eat herring eggs raw, too. Right. Right. You're making me hungry. <laughs> yes, it's right around the corner, Mr. Chuck. <laughs> my my favorite way to eat herring eggs is the next way I'm going to get it. Nice. Yes. Nice. Whatever's coming up next, that's oh, going to be. <laughs> well, we want to thank you for your, your time, Mr. Kit Kuhn, Mr. Charlie Skulka Jr. Uh, we appreciate everything that you've shared with our listeners. And, and for those of you that don't know who was talking, this was Mr. Charlie Skulka Jr. who shared with us about subsistence and the herring and what it meant to him and uh, some of the commercial things that he had done in the past and the subsistence harvesting. So we really appreciate your time, Mr. Charlie, and ha'a. Thank you. That's in the Haida language, which is Mr. Charlie's uh, cultural background. So ha'a. Ah, goodness cheese, Mr. Chuck. All right. Thank you again. Again, we would like to finish up our episode with a beautiful poem by Pauline Duncan. We hope that you enjoy our show about the yow, the herring. Ten Sitka herring swimming near the waterline. A salmon bit one, and then there were nine. Nine Sitka herring looking for a mate. A crab grabs one, and then there were eight. Eight Sitka herring on their way to meet Kevin. A sea lion chomps on one, then there were seven. Seven Sitka herring, ready to say fiddlesticks, a bullhead takes one, and then there were six. Six Sitka herring wanting to survive, a halibut gulps one, and then there were five. Five Sitka herring traveling near the seafloor, an octopus snags one, and then there were four. Four Sitka herring recite in their ABCs. An eel nips on one, and then there were three. Three Sitka herring hoping they won't be the barbecue. A red snapper sucks on one, and then there were two. Two Sitka herring looking for some fun. A shark strikes, and then there was one. 
One Sitka herring swimming all alone says, my oh my, I think it's time I go home. Thanks for joining us to learn from our grandparents' teachings. Stay tuned next month to join for more stories, songs, and traditional ways of living. If you would like to hear previous episodes, search Our Grandparents' Teachings anywhere you find podcasts. If you have a story you'd like to share, please reach out at storytelling at kcaw.org. We'd love to hear from you. This show is supported in part by the Sika Tribe of Alaska, the Alaska Humanities Forum, and the National Endowment for the Humanities.